Gift Biz Unwrapped, episode 284. I just really love the idea of being a part of a kid's imagination and long-term memory. Attention gifters, bakers, crafters, and makers. Pursuing your dream can be fun. Whether you have an established business or are looking to start one now, you are in the right place. This is Gift Biz Unwrapped, helping you turn your skill into a flourishing business. Join us for an episode packed full of invaluable guidance, resources, and the support you need to grow your gift biz. Here is your host, gift biz gal, Sue Monheit. Hi there, it's Sue and welcome to another episode. If you're a new listener, there's a wealth of information here for you if you want to go back and binge past episodes. And of course, it's always good to subscribe to the show so each one is downloaded automatically ready and waiting for your listening, learning, and pleasure. Up first today, a quick announcement. Have you seen the new Facebook shops? I did a challenge in my Facebook group a few weeks ago to get people up and running on this platform. You may have heard the bonus podcast episode about it. It was so exciting to see current business owners open another channel for money to flow into their business and also for new makers who were getting their first sales ever. Based on all the feedback I received, I've now turned this challenge into a very affordable mini course. If you've been thinking about making money from your handmade products, yet haven't formally started your business yet, you definitely want to check this out. The holidays are coming, so it's the perfect time to have some of those gifting dollars come your way. You can get all the details about the program over at giftbizunwrapped.com forward slash Facebook shops. The link again, giftbizunwrapped.com forward slash Facebook shops. Now on to today's show. I'm taking you back into your childhood and we're talking about toys. I mean, do we have to eliminate that joy from our lives just because we're adults? I say no. So we have the toy coach here to talk with us all about the business of toys. Specifically, we go behind the scenes of a Kickstarter program. This could be a great option if you want funding to get your product onto store shelves. You'll hear specific direction and what to watch out for to make sure your Kickstarter is successful. Additionally, I want you to pay particularly close attention to the beginning of our conversation. We talk about an obstacle that we all face. I know you've experienced it. The one where the well runs dry on creativity. No matter how hard you force your brain to think, the creativity is just missing. How do people come up with the ideas that bring their product and business to the next level? Ajelle shares with us her method of attracting that creative spark and why it's so important. Let's jump right over to that conversation. Gift Biz listeners, I am so excited to introduce you today to Ajelle Wade, the toy coach. Oh my gosh, just by the name of it, it sounds like we're going to be having some fun today. (laughs) Ajelle's been having way too much fun working in the toy industry for over 10 years with companies like Toys R Us, Party City, and Madame Alexander. 
She has three patented toy products, multiple design awards, and is the host of the well-known toy industry podcast called Making It in the Toy Industry. Today, Ajel is known as the Toy Coach. She loves helping people outside of the toy industry find their way in so that they can bring their toy ideas to life. Her online program, Toy Creators Academy, clarifies the toy development and launch process with step-by-step guidance. Ajel's mantra for her students and listeners is, make it toyetic. Oh, I love that. Ajel, welcome (laughs) to the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Happiness and smiles is what toys are all about, right? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I can't wait to dive into this one. Okay, but I'm going to put everyone in suspense for a minute because I have to ask my traditional question, which is revolving around a motivational candle. So we're all creators here. I call my community gifters, bakers, crafters, and makers. We all do handmade something or handmade turns into something else, maybe even a toy. I don't know. I like to have you describe yourself by way of a motivational candle. It gives us a little different look inside you. So if you were to tell us what color and quote would be a candle that you would create specially for yourself, what would it look like? Okay, well, I have to say this question is amazing because my sister actually used to make candles as one of her main hobbies. So I want my motivational candle to be my favorite favorite candle of hers, which was this apple pie candle. I know it's different. Oh, yum. (laughs) But I loved that candle. And I feel like that would just be I mean, she gave me one. I feel like that's my motivational candle because it kind of helps me remember how sweet life is. It's easy to get caught up in the day to day and not appreciate what you have. And that candle looks so sweet, smelled so sweet. Honestly, this apple pie candle, that's my candle. I'm all over it. Was it shaped and looked like an apple pie too? Oh, yeah. It was sized like an apple pie. No. Yeah, it was this apple pie candle. Oh, yum. All right. I'm with you with that. Why is she not making them anymore? We need them. She got a a more realistic job, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Either that or maybe she should listen to this show and then learn. I don't know what. (laughs) Paths take us different ways, right? And given that, let's talk about your path into the toy industry. Like I'm thinking, although you were exposed to toys as a child, you didn't think this would be your career. I actually knew I was always going to work with kids in some way. So I went back and forth between wanting to be a teacher, like a child psychologist. And then I actually went on to major in exhibition design at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. And I was really focused on doing children's exhibitions. I was like, I'm going to work at the Hall of Science and I'm going to develop these experiences for kids. And so I guess one of my teachers saw what I was doing and how all of my exhibitions were focused on kids and play. And he told me, he was like, you know, there's a toy program here. And I was like, what are you talking about? Really? He was like, yeah. <laughs> he was like, there's a toy design program here. And I was like, well, I'm trying to make a living. And that doesn't sound like I can make any money doing that. Right. And he was like, no. He's like, this industry is actually very lucrative. He's like, it's a real industry. You should look into it. So I did. And I mean, the rest is history. I went and I met the head of the toy program at the Fashion Institute of Technology, FIT. I told her my passion and she kind of took me under her wing. And I took a couple of pre-classes to get myself ready to apply for the program. And I applied and they only accept about 20 to 30 people a year. So I got in and the rest is history. So I'm thinking that the toy program then went through product development, lots of business classes, things like that. 
marketing, all that? You know, it was actually much more creative than business. So it was a lot of illustration, trying to illustrate your ideas, concept your ideas, physically working in wood shops to build your toy products out of wood and plastic. And then there was a little bit of like marketing, but also we got into like graphic design and 3D modeling. We touched on everything in the toy industry and it was just a two year program. I just have to ask this because I'm curious. (laughs) What was it about kids that attracted you so much? I think with kids, it's just the way that sense of wonder that they have everything that they look at in their everyday life. They're just amazed and interested. And it's like the best thing they've ever seen. So it feels good, like the reactions that you get from whatever you're doing, working with them, just it's good for them. And then it also comes back and it feels good to you, too. Yeah, definitely. And who doesn't like to feel like they're making a positive impact? I just love the idea that I could do something that will live on in a child's memory the way that Polly Pockets live on in my memory. It's this like positive, fun thing that allowed me to be creative and create worlds. I just really love the idea of being a part of a kid's imagination and long-term memory. I'm almost thinking, especially now, because Polly Pockets, just when you say that, I can see my favorite one right now. Yeah, which one was your favorite one? It was a blonde haired one that was inside a little bubble necklace that I wore around my. Oh, that's so cute. (laughs) Really? Yes, of course I don't have it anymore. What was I thinking when I gave those things away? I was needing to be an adult or something? I don't know. I know. Like, I wish, do you still have some of your little kid dolls? No, I blame my mom. She went through this whole like cleaning phase when I left the house and I had this giant bag filled with Polly Pockets and she totally threw them away. And I tell her now, I'm like, you know, those are worth like hundreds of dollars, by the way. Right. (laughs) Those things you threw away, mom. (laughs) But my favorite Polly Pocket, it was like a perfume bottle. And it actually had at the top of the perfume bottle, like the case looks like a perfume bottle when you closed it. Mm-hmm. And the top of it actually had like a rose scent. So it was actually like perfume. I love that. So it was double duty. You got the doll and the perfume. Yeah, the place set. It was yeah. great. All right. So this is the type of thing that all toy makers are hoping for, right? That we speak about the toys that we had with a passion and it touches our heart. Like, that's the goal, right? To remember. Yes, 100%. Okay, so I'm still so curious. I have to talk more about you and and your experiences (laughs) here. Three patented toy products. Did that evolve from the training? So, yeah, I mean, what happened to me when I first started in the toy industry in college, I was actually terrible at coming up with ideas. I was so bad. I would like cry at night because I'm like, I can't come up with any more toy ideas. <laughs> and like, it was terrible. Oh, <laughs> crying over toys again. Yeah, it was so bad. <laughs> I would like, say to my friends, like, why did you let me go into this major? Like, what were you thinking? It was terrible. But because of that, I had to figure out how to control my creativity and like how to be able to unleash it the way I wanted to unleash it, right? Or when I wanted to unleash it. So I think I learned through the toy program how to do that, how to control my creativity. I came up with the ways that work best for me. I learned from other people, learned a little bit from teachers. So when I got out into the world and I'm working at my first job, all of my patents were actually from very early on in my career. This way of thinking that I developed is how I came up with the patented ideas. 
it's something I kind of break out into steps into in my podcasts and teachings and stuff. But it's just a way to not get caught up with what other companies are doing. But at the same time, you have to do the research to know what's existing. So it's like a fine line between trend research and knowing what's going on, but also being able to put it away and combine it with books and TV shows and even favorite candles to come up with something completely unique. It's all about digesting good content and allowing it to mix around in your head without controlling it, without trying to say, I need to come up with something specifically for teens. It's more about absorbing books, TV shows, kids' YouTube channels, what other toy companies are doing, new materials that are out there, and just letting them sit inside your mind without too much control. And then when ideas start cropping up, writing them down and not thinking them through too much. And I think it's really important to allow your brain to learn how to kind of combine things that might not seem creative. And then you teach yourself how to see the creativity within those combinations. And they're like, oh, wait, actually, if you combine Polly Pockets and Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, that's actually could be a good idea. How can I evolve that more? So that's kind of how I taught myself. And that's how I came up with the patented ideas and things like that. And that's how I still come up with ideas today. I think we can all get it when you were first talking about what's the blank slate. It's kind of like when we talk about writing a blog article or something, like it's a blank piece of paper. What Mm -hmm. are those words? Same thing with product creation is what I'm hearing you saying. And I think it's really, really important. One of the things that you just said as you were going through is you need to know what's out there in the industry of what you're looking at making, but then you shut it off. Yes. Just making another repeat. Who is it? There's that quote that says different is better than better. Have you ever heard that? No. Yeah, there's a quote. I forget who said it, but I think it was Sally Hogshead who might have said that. So creating something different still in an industry that, you know, toys is Mm -hmm. you get so much further along than making a better doll, a better Polly Pocket, a better whatever. Yes, exactly. And the only way you're going to do that is to shut off what you're seeing from everybody else, because I think that actually restricts your creative thinking. It's so funny you say that because that is exactly what I was doing when I was first starting out. I would look at existing toys and literally think, how can I make that better? And it didn't work. It just didn't work. The ideas weren't creative. They weren't innovative. It didn't feel fun. It didn't feel natural. So when you stop thinking about just making something better, but you want to make something different, that's yeah, you're so right. Right. Well, I'd like to claim the quote, but I can't. (laughs) (laughs) I also think when you look at your competition, it gets very intimidating and defeatist. How could I possibly get as big as them or it's already done? All those things that we start telling ourselves. Yeah. One of the big things is to just look at how kids are playing and look at how they want to play instead of looking at your competition. Then you can combine how kids are already playing or how they want to play with a new theme to come up with something different. Oh, that's good. Look at your customer. Put your focus on your customer. 100%. I think also, I'm saying this for listeners benefit, but I'm going to share it with you. (laughs) So in my private Facebook group, I don't have, you know how lots of times in the industry, like you have the toy industry, then there are places for people who are knitters, or they're in sublimation or gift baskets, all of that. My umbrella with my group is handmade. Everything is handmade or at least starts handmade. Sometimes then it gets reproduced later in multitude. 
But I think the value of that is everyone is a creator. And by crossing an industry, like you may see an industry in knitting if you're a candle maker that Mm -hmm. can apply, but we can also get too niched into our own fields too. And that's similar to if you're looking at a product and looking at the competition. It's the same type of thing. Yeah. I love looking at other fields for inspiration. Yeah. And even not even products, as you were referencing earlier, just all different types of things for inspiration. So if as listeners, that's a tip, something to think about as you go forward. I'm meaning it seriously. If you're stuck on an idea, reach out of where you've already been looking and thinking. And I really liked, it sounds counterintuitive to me, but letting your mind just rest on it for a while. Yes. So important. Yeah. And I was just going to say also, I'm thinking, you know, have you ever done where you're thinking about something, you're thinking about something and the answer just isn't coming to you. And then you're like, okay, I just putting it away for a while, or maybe you have plans at night or something. And then all of a sudden the idea and the answer or solution comes to you when you're not thinking about it. All the time. If anything, I'll just overload myself with more content if I can't figure it out. Just so that I'm like, if I push more things into my brain, that idea is going to come to the top eventually. You're trying to push it to the top. There you go. All right. So let's address people who are listening right now. So most of them make a product or are thinking about making a product. It might be toy related. It might not. But let's say that they do have an idea for a toy since that's your specialty. And I want to get all the goodness out of you today. (laughs) I don't know how to say this right, but let me just say it. Lots of times, and this is for all makers I'll see, people will make something and they love it. And our friends and family will tell us it's wonderful because they love us. And then they spend a lot of time and money and take it to market and nobody's buying. Right. What's the step in between there that oftentimes we're missing? Definitely going to smaller craft shows and trying to sell your product direct to consumers. I'm not talking like New York Toy Fair. I'm not even talking about the Chicago Toy and Game Fair. Like those are still toy shows. I'm talking your local craft shows that are happening in your town or maybe a couple of towns over and making either hand making a small sample size, and that could just be 25 to 50 pieces of your product and selling it to people and seeing what their reactions are. Instead of asking people, you can go all day and ask people like, what do you think about this idea? Do you think that this is a good product? But until you're asking somebody to exchange money for that product, you're not going to get an honest answer. And I'm telling you, you have to go into these craft shows and trade shows with an open mind thinking, whatever this product is that I'm showing, it is not final and it is not done. You're going to these shows because you're trying to sell it and get feedback for what needs to be fixed or perfected so that it can be final and done. And if you're doing a product that's like maybe you can't hand make it and you have to make it in China, that's okay. You can do a couple of things. You can either, if it's a plastic product, there are plenty of ways for you to do rapid prototypes of it. So you could try to sell prototypes or you can just do very small runs with factories, like 100 pieces, 500 pieces, super small runs and try to sell those. But I think people's biggest mistake is developing, like you're saying, spending too much time and money developing too deeply before actually trying to sell it, like really physically go out there, show it to people, maybe record their responses if you can and get direct feedback. I noticed this too. And I ended up creating a program. It's called Start With Confidence that people go through to validate their product. And sometimes it's as easy as 
I have three scents of these candles. We'll stick with that because I love candles, obviously. And they're just not the scents that are popular that people want right now or the repetitive scents because we've been looking at our competitors and know that we have to have a vanilla scented candle. There's not enough of a difference where just making some small adjustments opens the door to everything. I like what you're saying. Just the prototypes too. And I'm almost thinking, could you do something like this? I'm just brainstorming with you now. Because if you're officially going and sourcing factories, you're going to actually do a prototype. And I think we'll get into that in a minute. You were suggesting that you could make a number of kind of tester products, if you will. And I could see marketing around that by new on the market, be one of the first to test the product and provide us feedback. Yeah, here's a discounted rate. Give us your feedback. Yes, 100%. We're still in development. Love for you to try it out. Here it is. Never been on the market before. Like that sounds super special to me. That's a lot of what Kickstarter is too. And I've talked to a lot of people with doing toy Kickstarters. And yeah, that's what a lot of people are doing with Kickstarter. They're just trying to fund their first round of their product. But usually what happens is in the process of doing a Kickstarter, people tell you what they want to see and what they don't want to see. And then you might not be able to make the changes for that specific Kickstarter run. But if you decide, okay, this product did really well, I funded my Kickstarter, I'm taking this to New York Toy Fair, then now you've had valuable feedback that not only can you adjust your product with, but you can tell buyers, hey, look, I've sold to 20,000 people already through my Kickstarter and they all like this color. So if you're going to start out with this product, I suggest you go with the blue because that's what most people are resonating with. So you're going to get valuable information that could actually help you sell your product in the next step. Yeah, that's good. You know, we've never really talked Kickstarter here on the show before. So I want to go down that road. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. All right. So let's say that someone has a product that they've made. They've tested it out a little bit. And then these are all handmade at this point. But let's go so far as to say they've connected with a factory and they have a prototype. Let's just kind of start there. What do you do then? Like if you're thinking that you're going to do a Kickstarter, how does that happen? Am I entering in at the wrong place? You tell me. That's a big question. So like you have a prototype and now what is what you're saying? You have a prototype. You like the way it's looking. You've gotten a little bit of market feedback because you probably did before you even went and got your prototype. The only reason I'm starting there is we've talked about how you should select a factory before we've done that part. If biz listeners, if you're interested in more information on production, identifying factories and wholesale, I would send you back to episode number 162, where we dive deep into all of that. I'd love to jump ahead and start talking about Kickstarters. Right. It depends on what your goals are. So I've interviewed a couple of people I've done really successful Kickstarters, and some of my followers are doing Kickstarters. And so once you have your prototype and it's functioning, you would then place, but depending on your factory, whatever their minimum order is, or you could try to negotiate for a lower one, you would order based on your approved prototype enough pieces to meet the minimum order quantity. And then simultaneously, you would be planning to launch your Kickstarter. You want to make sure that before you launch, the product is already in the process of being produced, or you at least like have the funds to produce it. Because if you get full backing, you want to make sure that the product is going to be delivered on time, whatever that schedule is that you outline in your Kickstarter. So you just want to make sure it's fully developed, prototype's good, you're ready to place your order, or maybe you have just placed your order before you're launching. And yeah, and then that's it. Then you're just going heavy on marketing. 
You're going really heavy on your marketing to make sure you can meet your Kickstarter goals so that when your backers fulfill your project and your project goes forward, that you don't have to say like, oh, actually, we started production like two months too late and now all of your products are late. Because a lot of people have had Kickstarters that just go completely under because either they couldn't meet their deadlines and then people want to pull out or they've miscalculated like the cost of shipping their goods. And then they have to either pull out or they end up having a loss even after having a successful Kickstarter. So they might end up with negative profits. Oh, gee. And the whole point of a Kickstarter is to raise funds so that you can grow bigger. Yeah, that is the whole point. The biggest thing, what I've learned with Kickstarters is the biggest thing is calculating your shipping. If you're going to be offering worldwide shipping, make sure you understand financially what that means, how much that's going to cost per piece and figure out how are you going to even cover that cost if you do have orders from all over the world? Because it's not like shipping to Target where you're shipping to one warehouse. You have to ship to every individual person, and that gets really costly. Right. If you're fulfilling the orders yourself, which at that point you probably are. You are. Yeah, you most likely are. That's a great warning for all of us, and especially right now with the prices going up. Who knows what? I think I heard the stamp might go up to like $1.50 by the end of the year. Oh, my God. I think I'll be getting fewer Christmas cards this year. Yeah, <laughs> but also it's the timing of it now, too, right? Everything's taking so long to get delivered. You want to make sure that you're promising a date that you can actually meet, not just for when you can ship it out, but when your factory can ship the goods to you to you. I know. I actually just got a shipment from China this morning. This was an air shipment, which was surprising because we ordered it last Thursday. We're recording here on a Monday. I already have it. But the order before that, which was just a couple of weeks ago, took like 10, 12 days. Now, this is air shipping because it's like a smaller lot. Going on the water is a whole nother story. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to say, like, maybe they just squeezed it onto a freight right before it left. But if it's air shipping, interesting. It's air shipping. The second one was smaller. So they're going to find if they have space on a plane, they'll find the job that'll fit on there. So it's unpredictable, I guess, is the it point is. that yeah. we'd say, especially right now. So that's interesting. Just talking about Kickstarter and where some of the failure points could be, if you will, is not being able to fulfill the promise that you made because it's a timing issue. So that's one. And then the cost is another, and most likely the hole there is the cost of the shipping. Yes. Those are the things that you're saying. Okay, so let's say Kickstarter went well, I priced well, lots of receptivity, I'm sold out, so I'm like feeling really good that this product is gonna do really, really well in the market. Now what do I do? You'll hear next steps right after a quick break. Yes, it's possible. Increase your sales without adding a single customer. How, you ask? By offering personalization with your products. Wrap a cake box with a ribbon saying, Happy 30th birthday, Annie. Or add a special message and date to wedding or party favors for an extra meaningful touch. Where else can you get customization with a creatively spelled name or fine packaging that includes a saying whose meaning is known to a select two? Not only are customers willing to pay for these special touches, they'll tell their friends and word will spread about your company and products. You can create personalized ribbons and labels in seconds. Make just one or thousands without waiting weeks or having to spend money to order yards and yards. Print words in any language or font. Add logos, images, even photos. Perfect for branding or adding ingredient and flavor labels, too. For more information, go to theribbonprintcompany.com. 100% I would make sure you're going to toy trade shows. 
and also at the same time, maybe even applying for toy awards just to gain marketability and, and notoriety for your product. And if you can time it all really well, you could be at a toy trade show advertising that, oh, we're up for this award. We're nominated for a toady. Or maybe we won a toady or maybe we won another new inventor award so that your name is top of mind for the people attending the show. And when you go to these toy trade shows, you just want to come ready with product. There might be small retailers that are just going to take, I don't know, 500 to 1,000 pieces. And if you have it ready, they'll write you an order right away and they'll say, ship it. Here's the address. Here's the payment information. And if there are larger retailers there and they find interest in your product, they could write you bigger orders for 10,000 pieces, 50,000 pieces. So I would definitely, if you've had a successful Kickstarter, attend all the toy trade shows. I mean, I put together because it's really hard to find all of them. So I put together a little book on my site called the Toy Trade Show Handbook for Toy People, because you can find them if you Google them all. But sometimes if you don't know the names of them, it can be hard to find them. Yeah, so I made that quick little PDF to help so that all of the popular toy trade shows are in one PDF, easy to find. Perfect. Okay, and so for people who are just starting to listen to the show, we're talking at this point about getting your product into a store. So you're going to sell wholesale now versus you direct a customer. But there's also some things you should prepare because I'm thinking if we ran out of our initial product in the Kickstarter and we get an order for 25,000 pieces, let's say, we need to be prepared for that too. So I'm thinking there's some conversation to have been had with the factory so you know what expectations could look like and be ready for that if indeed that happens, right? Yeah, before you start with any factory partner, you should have an outline of questions that you want to ask them. You want to have an understanding of the volume they're able to take on, how many pieces they could produce in a month at most, and minimum, obviously, when you're just starting out. And then you want to know what their busy seasons are. It's a pretty simple question to ask. You just want to ask them, what's your busy season from what date to what date? And during that busy season, how long is turnaround time? How is the speed of what you're producing affected? And how do they prioritize their customers? Is it first person in with the order or is it most valuable customer goes first? And where do you fall on that line? So you definitely want to have those conversations first and just have an idea of how long it takes your factory to produce things. So when you're going to the toy shows, depending on the show that you're at, depending on the season of the toy calendar, honestly, now with COVID, things are just, it's like a whole new world and things are changing quite a bit. But usually there's a a pretty standard, there's a fall and there's a a spring season for toy buying. And you know when those orders are coming in and they're kind of, you can expect them. You just want to make sure that when you're going to these shows, they're going to give you an order and they're going to say, hey, we want to bring this in for fall. And you're already going to know that that means that's August, that you are going to have to have them ready to ship out to these toy companies. So then you go backwards and you say, OK, if I have to have them ready to ship August, when does that mean that I have to get the order into my factory and just kind of backtrack that way? But Once you get used to the toy schedule, when orders are placed, you'll have an understanding of, okay, any fall orders, they're going to expect the product to be ready by, let's say, August 31st or something like that. They're going to expect that. Any spring orders, they're going to expect the product to be ready on this date in in March. So you're going to get used to that timeline and everybody is going to operate on the same timeline. It's not like you have to understand something new every toy show. It's going to be a pretty standard timeline. They're not going to give you an order for 25,000 pieces and say, hey, I want you to deliver this like next month. Like that's not going to happen. No one expects that to happen. Right. They're understanding too. 
Well, yeah, they're planning. They have to plan. They're planning for their future. They still have inventory sitting in their warehouses and sitting on their shelves that they're still working through. They're planning a year in advance. So they're like, okay, we want you in for next fall. And they're telling you that this fall. That's usually how it works. Right. And you learn a lot of this just by time in, too. And I think being at the shows, rubbing shoulders with other people, you just start to learn the industry, the timing, etc. I would also add to that, and I got caught up in this when I first started working with China, is what are their holidays where they close shop? Oh, <laughs> yeah, such a good point. So don't be placing an order in January and thinking that's considered production time because it's I not. I know, it's not. <laughs> no, those orders, the Chinese New Year's orders have to come in way before yeah. just to be safe. I know. Yeah, just to be safe. They shut down for a whole month. Yeah. But also now when we transition past a Kickstarter, then I think also we need to be considering pricing because now we're talking about wholesale pricing if we're going to start going to a trade show. Yes, 100%. What advice do you have there for people? I mean, usually you can follow Keystone pricing, and that just means that's 50%. So if whatever you're buying it from the factory for, you double that price, and that would be your wholesale price, and you double that price once more, and that would be your retail price. So what I would say is when you're first starting and you're selling at the Kickstarter level, you should be aiming to sell your product on your Kickstarter for your retail price. So that's two markups. So that's the factory price, you double that, you get your wholesale price, you double that, you get your retail price. And that should be what you're starting with for your Kickstarter. Now, granted, it's a Kickstarter, so you're going to say this is the retail price, but because you're our backers on Kickstarter, you're going to get a special discount of XYZ and here's your new price. But the reason you want to start with that retail price is because you don't want to go to Target and Walmart and say like, hey, you should buy this toy and retail it for $29.99. And then all of your sales data is kind of showing that people only wanted to buy it for $9.99. And they'll be like, well, why would we put that product in our stores when clearly it's not worth $29.99. So when you're developing your product, you definitely have to be developing a product that can match the retail price point of whatever your desired retailer is. And that's going to be completely different if it's a big store like Walmart or like a mom and pop shop from your local neighborhood, which might accept a higher price point for a smaller box, for example. Got it. And I think as you're doing your research then at this point, too, you should be asking your factory what type of breaks you're going to get at certain levels, at certain volumes. Yeah, 100 percent. Your BOM, which would be your bill of materials, should already have built into it. And this is all stuff that I outline in my course, Toy Creators Academy. But your BOM should already have built into it different price point breakdown. So you'll ask them, what's the price if I buy 3000 pieces versus 10,000 pieces versus 30,000 pieces. So you should have all of that pricing when you first develop your product, they should be giving you that the different levels of pricing. Okay. And then you wouldn't necessarily use your pricing for your first order to base your ultimate end price on because that price is going to be higher. I mean, you do have to. So like you're going to give yourself a margin window. So most toy companies, they're aiming for, let's say 55% margin. And they might be willing with, because there's so many things you have to take into consideration. So with discounts, with buybacks, defective product, they might be willing to go down as low as like 25% margin. So you have to give yourself and you have to define your window of margin that you're willing to accept. 
and so you have to create a retail price point that kind of is in between your, let's say your price that your factory gave you for developing 500 pieces and the price that they gave you for developing 30,000 pieces or 10,000 pieces. And you have to decide what's that midpoint price that I'm willing to accept for either of those scenarios, whether I'm paying a dollar for this or I'm paying 50 cents for this, what retail price point can I accept? And this is when people would want to come to you and work through your programs, because there's a lot to it, obviously. Yeah, for sure. You want to keep your price steady. You don't want to be going out with like one price and then it's like drastically lower, drastically higher when it hits the shelves. I mean, if you build up all of this notoriety and trust around your product, you definitely don't want to be surprising your consumers by changing the price drastically in either direction. Because if it's too low, they're going to say, what happened to the quality get worse? And if it's too high, they're going to be like, what happened? Why are you trying to rip me off? You want to keep it steady. Right. You're kind of when you set your first price, you're kind of putting a line in the sand at that point. Yeah. Quality wise, all of that. You're teaching people what to relate to your product and adjusting that is always harder than if you spend some time getting that first price set properly. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I want to shift gears here with a question for you that I hear in my community all the time. (laughs) It doesn't apply as much to a lot of my people, but I think it applies to the majority of the people that you're serving. And that is, at what point do you share exactly what you're doing and what you're thinking? And when do you start initiating a patent for protection? That whole big, big question. Right. So, I mean, this is such a hard question because there are two different types of people that I serve. So there are aspiring toy inventors and aspiring toy entrepreneurs. And the answer to that question is going to be different for both of those. Let's start with aspiring toy entrepreneurs, because I feel like that's most of your listeners. Yeah, I think you have to define what they are. Right. I will. Okay. So an aspiring toy entrepreneur is essentially somebody who develops a product to sell. An aspiring toy inventor is somebody who develops an idea to sell. So the entrepreneur sells a product and the inventor sells an idea. So if you are an entrepreneur, toy entrepreneur, that means you have one product and you're like, this is it. This is like the next big thing. And I am going to just like build a whole company around this one idea and just hopefully become American girl. Right. That's what, that's what your <laughs> goal is. So first thing to remember is not every idea is patentable. And that's okay. You don't have to patent an idea to be able to protect it. You can protect the name and the brand by doing things like filing a trademark. You can protect your copy if you have some sort of special, maybe it's a book or you have a story around your character with copyrights. There are other ways to protect your IP. For if you do have a product that is like a unique invention, one of the things you can do is you can file or you can hire a lawyer to file a provisional patent. And a provisional patent, usually if you do it yourself, is about $70 to file on USPTO.gov. And you can utilize that provisional patent in the early stages of your product development and process and try to sell and make a profit off of your idea so that you can fund your full-fledged patent, right? So say you do have a patentable idea and you file a provisional patent, it's super affordable. People say hiring a lawyer is best because you wanna make sure you're actually protected. You have about a year to turn that provisional into a full-on patent. And if you don't, 
all of your concept and everything is kind of public domain and fair game. And then you lose all of your protections there. So that is where I would start. And then if it is patentable and you've made money off of it and people seem interested, work with a lawyer. Or if you're very detail oriented, you can try to file it yourself. I wouldn't advise it. It's complicated. But then you would develop the full on patent. Got it. My brother's a trademark patent attorney. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he scares me all the time when we start talking about these things because it is not my area of expertise. I know enough to be dangerous, maybe. Right. But it's always everyone's concern because they're worried that someone's going to steal their idea and take it. And yes. I don't know. I agree with this. And then I also disagree. You know how people will say ideas are a dollar a dozen. Everyone has ideas. And everyone can also steal your ideas, but it's difficult to turn an idea into reality or a product into either one into actually turning it into a business and monetizing. Yeah. And no one is going to love your idea the way that you love your idea. And it's all about execution. In the toy industry, it's, it's all about who's going to execute it with passion and focus and consistency. And then on the other hand, the toy inventor. So aspiring toy inventors that are looking to sell an idea, which I know isn't something that we really touched on, but it is another avenue. So if you have an idea for a toy and you're like, I don't really want to like make a whole business, like I don't want to do all that, but I would love to make money off of this idea. That is when I could definitely understand if you feel like a patent is more necessary. But I've got a little surprise because the people out there that are known as toy inventors, pro toy inventors that just go to toy companies, present ideas, show mock-ups of how these ideas will work and actually get licensing deals with toy companies. Most of those ideas are not patented. And it's really just honestly a relationship and a trust game in the toy industry. It's not that you're shouting your concept to the rooftops, but you are signing NDAs with specific toy companies and then showing them your product so that they will respect that it's your product and that's all written out in the NDAs and things that you sign. So you might not need to file a patent just to protect this one idea that you're just trying to license off to Hasbro or Mattel or something like that. Yeah, you're licensing it off and then they're going to take it from there after they've paid you for the idea. Yeah, and honestly, they may end up patenting it. Right. Let them do the hard work. Let them do that. <laughs> yeah. It's an expensive process. So if you don't need to, you could definitely do provisional patent and then shop the idea around for a year. But if you don't need to, I wouldn't sink my money into that. Okay. I think that's good. And I've also heard that it really costs a lot of money. I think of think of the people that we're serving and are listening here. They're making products. And yes, they might be a little bit individualized, etc. And clearly, as the artist, that's where the real overlay comes in, in terms of the personality and how you bring it to market and all of that. But I have, well, I've know from personal experience, but I've also heard from other people is enforcing some of this. And I'm not talking patents as much as I'm talking trademarks and all of that. The legal stuff is expensive to enforce. Yes, that is the next thing. Yeah, if you can't afford to patent the product, you definitely can't afford to fight for the patent to be respected. Yeah, it's cost prohibitive. Honestly, inventing is a quantity. It's a numbers game. So if you're going that route in the toy industry, you just want more ideas. You're better off spending your money to develop more working prototypes than you are to try to patent and fight patents. Gotcha. Yeah, makes sense. And you know, if people can see that it's like more of your time and your dedication into promoting your idea or your product versus protecting it. 
Yeah. Oh, that's good. <laughs> You'll be so much further along, I think. Yes. So are there any really big challenges that are unique to the toy industry that we haven't talked about that we should be aware of? The biggest challenge right now is COVID. And I think there's so much. I mean, the biggest change I'm seeing is how retailers are kind of, I don't want to say they're losing their power pull, because of course, they still have power and pull. But they hadn't been able to accept new products because stores were closed. So the shelves were stocked and the warehouses were stocked. And as much as things were selling through online, and then when stores started opening, things sold through, toy companies actually weren't seeing any of that earnings because they were just waiting for more orders. But the retailers are like, we don't need any more orders. We've got a warehouse full of products. And even though we're selling a ton of stuff from online and from our shelves. So I think the struggle right now and until we find a cure is going to be, what is our new calendar look like? Are we going to still be buying in the fall and the spring seasons? Are we still going to buy on that cycle? Or is it going to be something a little bit more reactive? Or are we going to focus more numbers online? Are we going to be giving more product to our warehouses so that people can order without having to leave home? And aside from that whole thing, like that's not enough. The other struggle is just that I think retailers or buyers who are the ones that are normally deciding if your product is going to go in their store and on their shelf are now kind of deferring or kind of being led by social media influencers and social media trends. So whereas it used to be you're trying to develop the next big thing to a Target or a Walmart buyer or to Urban Outfitters buyer, now people are looking to social media because that has the numbers and the likes and the shares and the eyeballs and even looking to content on YouTube and streaming services to identify trends and then showing that to buyers and saying, hey, this is a huge trend. Look at how many follows this hashtag has, how many likes, how many posts. And we built a toy around this idea. And mm -hmm. that is leading the decision of buyers where I think they used to be a little bit more their personal opinion. And now social media is taking over and showing them like, no, 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 no. This is what you need to buy because right. the mermaid hashtag is big. But you have to point it out to them. I mean, I think that's something for us to remember overall, regardless, whatever's trending in our culture. And if your product somehow can fit into that, take advantage of it. Ride the wave. Did some of your people see a lift in the toy industry? I'm thinking of what happened with puzzles. Yeah, I think crafts and puzzles 100% had a lift. I can't remember the exact number now, but I feel like it was the overall toy industry, not April. I think after April had a lift of, I think it was something like 17%. And they'd never had a lift that high in years. It's usually a 1% lift year over year in the toy industry. And now it's double digits. I think I contributed to that with the puzzles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Puzzles, arts and crafts. I mean, yeah, it was amazing. Well, and now homeschooling again, because it looks like we're going to go through the fall semester anyway. I know. Education is probably the next one. Yeah. And toys for education or keeping children just occupied besides just being on TV or their phones or something like that. Yeah. So I think if people think that way, and it's not going to work for every single product, obviously. But the point is, it's not obvious to buyers to always see that. You've got to say it. Yes, that is so true. Yeah. Have you seen anybody who has been 100% wholesale switch it up over this last eight months or so to then go direct to consumer too? 
what is funny is, so on one of my Kickstarter episodes, I interviewed a woman named Evie Triantafilitis. Her name's very hard to say. So she has a business or a product called Worldwide Buddies. And she initially started selling at like museum shops and smaller gift shops. And then she launched her Kickstarter. And this is what our whole conversation was about. We're talking about her Kickstarter. And as a part of her strategy, she had intended at a certain part of her campaign to reach out to her retail buyers to say like, hey, look at our successful Kickstarter. Are you ready to place your orders for the next season? Now, she launched her Kickstarter at the beginning of COVID in March. Mm. So she actually said that, yeah, by the time we got to that point of our strategy, we were like, oh, no, we can't reach out. They're not buying anything. You know, they're not even open. They might not even have jobs. So she was actually intending to go much more retail this year, much more wholesale focused. And then because of COVID, ended up switching back to being much more consumer focused. I was just really curious about that. And it's the right way to go for the time being, right? We're going to change with the times. We'll see what happens as we move forward. But just readdressing your plan and not being so like gung-ho, this is the plan. We have to stick to it. If things around you changed is important. I'm also seeing a lot of people in the licensing shows that have come up. There are a lot of people saying, hey, we will get your product on Amazon and help you ship your brands and your products online. So there is a huge push or it seems that there is a huge opportunity for people that sell things not just online, but specifically on the Amazon platform. Mm -hmm. So an Amazon handmade for our community is making a huge push right now. And Facebook, Facebook shops. Yeah, Facebook shops. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's big. I just did a challenge a couple weeks ago, just within my private community, that group I was referencing earlier, to have people get their shops up. Because so many people just sit and wait and are anxious and nervous and do all of that looking at the competition, (laughs) like we were talking about earlier. All the reasons why they're afraid to start. But Facebook shops offers a perfect opportunity for them to do that. Kind of just say, okay, let's do it without investing too much too early. Is that the same thing on their business page or is it different now? It's on the business page, but it's new. It's not the old Facebook shop. It's a new platform where people can actually check out on Facebook using the Facebook cart. So they don't need a website, they don't like all that. So it's very exciting, especially I think for my community, it offers a lot of opportunity for the initial stages and then testing. And then we were talking about if they have a product that makes sense to be produced overseas, then we flip over. But the whole point is look and see what's going on around you and see if that's something that can help enhance what you're doing and be open to changing. I think that's the takeaway there. Okay, so tell me a little bit about how you see COVID aside, because this will end. I know we don't really feel it might yet, but someday it will end. I know. Where do you see taking everything as the toy coach and your academy and all of that? Where are you going with this? My vision is to help more non-toy people get into the industry. Because what I see is there's so many traditional toy people, and we're great, and I love toy people, But I feel like there are new ideas that could be coming from teachers and doctors and scientists and psychologists that we need 
to make toys that are more than just dress up this doll or unveil this hidden gift. Toys that can enhance a child's development and give them long lasting memories, maybe even teach them something. So my dream is just that Toy Creators Academy and working with me will help people who never thought they would develop a toy idea, develop a toy that is just different, that brings something brand new to this industry. They don't have to do it alone and wonder if what they're doing is right. Yeah, I want to make it a come through me and there'll be a whole community. I want to connect everybody that works with me so that we can all inspire and help each other because so many people want to go at this whole entrepreneurial thing alone. And that is not the way to be successful. You need a team of people telling you what they did wrong so you can avoid that and you telling them what you did wrong so you can avoid that. And that's just what I'm trying to foster. Love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah, thank you. Well, Ajal, this has been so interesting. It's an industry that I am familiar with slightly, but not the nuances and all of that. And it's been really enlightening. I so, so appreciate it. Where can our listeners go and find more about you? They can head over to toycreatorsacademy.com to learn about the course or the toycoach.com and you can learn about everything and me there. Perfect. And I think we did our job here. I said at the top that this was going to be fun, and it really was. Oh, great. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Michelle. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Sue. What a great behind-the-scenes look at a Kickstarter program. I'm not saying this is for everyone, but if you're producing your product in volume, it's definitely something to consider to fund your growth. Next week, we're talking to a retail shop pro. She's opened and sold two retail stores and continues to recreate her vision to fuel her own passion and the needs of her customers. Plus, she has some big future plans I can't wait for you to hear. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. If you'd like to show support for the show, please leave a rating and review. That means so much and helps the show get seen by more makers. It's a great way to pay it forward. And now, be safe and well, and I'll see you next week on the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. Bye for now. I want to make sure you're familiar with my free Facebook group called Gift Biz Breeze. It's a place where we all gather and are a community to support each other. I've got a really fun post in there that's my favorite of the week, I have to say, where I invite all of you to share what you're doing to show pictures of your product, to show what you're working on for the week, to get reaction from other people, and just for fun, because we all get to see the wonderful products that everybody in the community is making. My favorite post every single week, without doubt. Wait, what? Aren't you part of the group already? If not, make sure to jump over to Facebook and search for the group Gift Biz Breeze. Don't delay. Come join us in Gift Biz Breeze. Today, 